Thank you very much. Church family, Merry Christmas. Thank you. It's my joy to lead our church as we worship this Advent season. Today you can turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. As you can see, we're going to take communion together in a few moments, but I'd like to preach to you for a few minutes first. I'm excited to be able to celebrate baptism with Sam Stroh and to know that all of us got to be here to take communion with Sam the very first time that Sam, as a baptized believer, took communion with his church family. So, Sam, congratulations, and it's our joy to be here today. Before we take communion, though, I'd like for us to spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes together in God's Word. We've been reading John's prologue during our Advent season, and I've tried to help the church recognize that these few verses in John's Gospel, they are like an atomic bomb. They're small, they're compact, but they've got so much power. Almost the entire Gospel of John is right here foreshadowed in these 18 verses of a prologue. If you read the prologue, you're ready to read the Gospel. And if you read the Gospel and then come back to the prologue, you'll be amazed at what comes out to you. But today our text is John chapter 1, verse 14. Will you turn with me to verse 14? I'll read verse 14, and then we'll read the remainder of the prologue. This is what we're focusing on today, church. The Word with a capital W, that is Christ, the eternal Word, the revelation of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in the place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Verse 14 said this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Church family, I want to pray for you, and as I pray for you, I want to ask you this question. So God has come to us in the flesh to show us the way, to you, so that you know you're not orphaned or abandoned. What are we going to do about that? Let's pray together. Lord, I ask your grace on us as a church as we submit to the scriptures, as we respect Christ. Lord, as we try to follow you with the rest of our lives and allow the ministry of your spirit, Lord, to change us from the inside out. We ask now for your grace over us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To understand John chapter 1, verse 14, at least from John's pen in my view, we've got to open both ends of the Bible. We've got to open our Old Testament to Exodus 33. Go ahead and do that. And we've got to keep our New Testaments open to John chapter 1. Here's the truth. What Jesus did when he came in the flesh, it wasn't an accident or a plan B. It wasn't an overtime Hail Mary. What Jesus did when he came to the earth in the flesh to redeem us, it was the plan of God from the foundation of the world. And so it's no surprise that we find in Christ the fulfillment of the great acts of God throughout the redemption history. And so I want you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33. Now let me set up this moment. 
In John's gospel, we are told that nobody's ever seen Christ. That, I mean, nobody's ever seen God. Now, the word that is Christ became flesh and came to dwell among us, which is remarkable because in truth, all the glory and truth of heaven that was God's realm came to walk among us in flesh in our realm and let us lay eyes on him. And I want you to understand what a powerful moment that is. Like biblically, you don't get to look at God. In Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah is in the presence of God. He looks up, he says, the train of God's robe filled the temple. He got to see only the train of his robe. In Exodus 24, the Israelite elders get to have a banquet in God's presence while they're eating to sign the covenant that they will be God's people. And they say the floor beneath his feet was blue, like, like an emerald called lapis luzi. They got to see what was at his feet. Nobody looks in the face of God. Nobody beholds his full-on glory. But in the incarnation, what we celebrate every single Christmas, like God became flesh and dwelled among us. The second person of the Trinity came to be with us. And I want us to appreciate the power of that. So turn to Exodus chapter 33. Here's the moment. God redeems his people. He cripples the gods of Egypt, brings them to their knees, literally, literally crushes the most powerful nation on earth without lifting a finger. He brings his people out of slavery, much like he's delivered us from slavery to our sins. He brought them out of slavery across the Red Sea. He was their protector, their liberator, their defender. Like he's their king and their sovereign God. He draws them near to himself at Mount Sinai. The mountain is quaking and smoking and God's presence is being manifested on the mountain and everyone is fear, full of fear and trembling and God booms out the Ten Commandments and all of his people get to hear God's covenant. Like, I want you to live like this. Here are the Ten Commandments that will govern your life with me. Now, are you ready to be my people? I'm ready to be your God. And the people look at Moses and they say, from this point forward, we're terrified. You go talk to him and we'll talk to you. So Moses goes up to the mountain where he spends time with God. And on the way down, God has given him the Ten Commandments in tablets, written. So what they heard spoken over them is now in code for them to keep. And you know how the story goes. This is the crazy moment. On the way down the mountain, Moses realizes that on day one of their walk with God, they're already turning their backs to idolatry. They're breaking the second commandment. They're making idols. When they get to the foot of the mountain in Exodus 32, he finds Aaron and the others worshiping a golden calf. Moses in anger breaks the commandments. And here's the setting, gang. God has just stretched out his arm to deliver his people. He's beginning to give them the covenant for what it looks like to live with him. And in the very opening act, they're idolatrous. That's not that much different than us. Jesus saved us and we run back to our sins and our pride. So what is God going to do about that? Like how's God going to handle these rebellious, hard-headed, sinful people, these imperfect people like me or like the Israelites? I mean, he could stretch out his strong arm and squash us. He could speak judgment and send hellfire even as we stand. He doesn't. Do you know what he does? He shows us grace after grace after grace. Even in this story, 
God tells Moses, I, you know, I'm going to send an angel with you guys. I'm not going. And Moses begs God, please, no, no, no. You've got to go with us. Please, you've got to go with us. If you don't go, we're not going. Your name is great. We want to represent you. And God says, okay, Moses, I heard your prayers. I'll go with you. And in the middle of that moment where Israel has blown it, they're covered in shame. And God just told Moses, I'm not done with them. Moses looks at God and says, will you show me your glory? Look in chapter 33 of Exodus, verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. You remember in John's gospel, John wrote that no one had ever beheld God's glory. So Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name the Lord in your presence. That would have been his personal name, Yahweh, in the Hebrew text. And I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. I want you to see that Moses says, all right, show me your glory. And God says, I can't let you see me, but what I will do is, I'll allow all of my goodness to pass in front of you. And you'll be able to see a glimmer and a glimpse. And then God begins to define himself. He says, Moses, I'm going to speak my name aloud over you. Like in this covenant relationship, you're going to hear me say my own name to you. And Moses, Moses, listen to me, listen to me. I want you to know, I don't want you to know this now. You might as well get this into your head. I am a God who I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy on. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion on. Now the other is true that God is just. And judges, but that's not what he says. He just tells a bunch of Israelites who have just blown it that I'll show mercy to whoever I want. In other words, I know you've broken my covenant before it's really been struck well, but I will show mercy. That's who I am. I'll show compassion. That's who I am. And so watch, watch how the story unfolds. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When, I'm the, when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. Powerful story, right? God says, I can't let you look at me, but I can let you see the shadow of my glory as I pass by. So watch how this unfolds and I promise it matters for our sermon today. John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Father, full of grace and truth. All right, so in Exodus 34, God's about to come to Moses and speak to Moses about who He is. And I want to show you what He says. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Sounds a lot like things that happened in my house. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones. He went up on the Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him 
and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And I'm assuming this is exactly the way that God described it. That Moses is in a cleft covered by the hand of God. And as God passes by, he begins to speak out loud. And as Moses prepares himself to get a glimmer of the glory of God, he is hearing God's voice speaking God's own name and inviting Moses into this personal relationship. And I want you to hear how God describes himself. Look, this is what it says. And passing in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. And I want you to hear these last two descriptions. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in love and faithfulness. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word love is this word kesed. It's, it's more than I love you. It's a covenant responsibility. It's, it's a merciful love. It's a long-standing, established relationship between God and His people that's built on His decision to show mercy and favor towards us that we don't deserve. In fact, when the Jewish people translated their Old Testament scriptures into Greek, the word that they used to describe this kind of love is mercy. Exactly the same word they used in John's Gospel when Jesus was described as the word who made us, became flesh and was full of grace and truth. This is grace. This is that kessed, that steadfast mercy. This is God's mercy towards us. And in full of grace and truth. Truth for the Hebrew was a truthfulness, a faithfulness that translated across to their Greek scriptures later results in exactly what we read in John's gospel. So I want you to read verse 14 again and think about this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we've seen his glory. Moses just got a shadow. But you've seen, we've seen the glory of God. In the stories of Christ, like in a Messiah that would die on a cross for our sins, you've seen the glory of the Father. You've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And he's still the same today. Like every one of us has been invited into a covenant relationship with God. Because the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we were able to behold the glory of God. To see what it looked like when God lived among us and taught us and loved us and healed us and helped us. And everybody hear this. And when God was determined to show mercy on whom he would show mercy. And when God used a cross to pay for our sins so that he could show mercy to whom he wished to show mercy. So that he could establish a covenant people with himself. So he could draw us in and invite us in to his glory. It was through the word made flesh. In the sixth chapter of John's gospel, this idea of the flesh of Jesus comes back in a strange, a very peculiar way. But it establishes for us our communion service today. I want to tell you about John chapter 6. A very long, but very powerful chapter of John's gospel. And again, Moses is hovering in the background of this story. You might remember that when Moses was leading the people in the wilderness, one sign of God's covenant faithfulness to the people is that they were hungry. And they were worried that they would die of starvation. And God said, I'll show you. He sent manna every day, bread from heaven to take care of people. Another reminder of a generous God that wanted to give and give and give and show mercy to whom he wished to show mercy. And here we are in John chapter 6, feeding of 5,000. Interesting to me, the feeding of 5,000 does not seem like the most remarkable miracle that Jesus performed. 
But, I mean, he raised people from the dead. That's pretty impressive to me. He walked on water, which to me, breaking a natural law, that's pretty impressive. But the feeding of the 5,000, it must have been remarkably important in the ministry of Jesus, more than we think. Because it is the only miracle of the wonders and signs that Jesus performed. It's the only miracle that all four Gospels narrate for us. And I think the reason it was so important is because it sets up the principle that Jesus Christ was the bread from heaven. And I want to show you what that looks like. So in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, in John's gospel, he gives you a little bit of the post-game party. Okay? So in John's gospel, he lets you know that after the 5,000 were fed, then lots of people came back. Like Jesus is booming in popularity. The crowds are swelling, which seems an awesome thing. But at the same time, in John's gospel, Jesus got to move to the cross. He's got to die. He can't become king before he's crucified. And so he looks at the crowds and he speaks a hard truth. And I'm going to go ahead and prepare you for this because it's weird. Jesus is going to say to all these people that it gathered, basically, you came back because you ate free food yesterday and you just want to eat more. I mean, will I keep working the miracles? Like, can you quit your job and just follow me around? And every day I'll just like, what do you want today, guys? And Jesus said, no, that's not my role. I'm not here just to feed you. And so he drops a very, very hard truth. He said, I'm the bread of heaven. And then he says it in a way that nobody would understand until after his death and resurrection. He said, listen, if you want to come after me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody understandably scratches their head and kind of scoots back. I cannot imagine what they were thinking he might have meant. Now, the remarkable thing is we know exactly what he meant today. His body, broken for us, is the bread of heaven. And every person who pledges their life to follow Jesus Christ remembers that as we eat the communion meal. We eat bread that is representative of his flesh that was broken for us. He said, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place with me. Nobody would drink his blood. That, that's simply a little gross. But every time we gather for communion and we lift the cup, we remember that his blood was poured out as the sacrifice. It was the blood of the second member of the Trinity, a covenant that was established on the pain that God himself incurred so that he could show mercy to those on whom he wanted to show mercy. He offered himself a propitiation for our sins, right, Abigail, who read that big word in church a few weeks ago? An atoning sacrifice that would pay for our guilt and appease the wrath of God, to make peace with us and God again. And it cost him everything. So he speaks to this crowd. He says, look in John chapter 6, verse 27, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. In John chapter 6, verse 30 through 33, the people look up at Jesus and say, okay, okay, we'll follow you. Give us a sign. Probably like, feed us again, you know? And they say, oh, we know a good sign. You know, manna from heaven would be a good sign. They ate a banquet yesterday. And so today they said, wait, we really believe you are from God. So can you call down manna from heaven? That would be a really awesome sign. We could eat the same bread that our ancestors ate. And Jesus knows that what their heart is set on was a shadow 
of the real thing. In other words, the manna that Moses picked up off the ground was just a small prophecy, a placeholder, a foreshadowing of the real bread of life that would come down from heaven to satisfy our souls for eternal life. They want Moses' manna. And Jesus says, you're missing the whole point. Moses' manna was just thinking about my mercy. Like Moses' manna was just looking forward to me. The real thing is here. Stop chasing the counterfeits. And this is what Jesus says to them. In John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 35, And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Eternally satisfied at Abraham's banquet table. Deep in your soul a peace with God that you cannot create with any manna or any other man-made meal. In John chapter 6 verse 48, he looks at that same bewildered crowd and he says, I am the bread of life. Are you tracking? The word became flesh and dwelled among us. He brought the truth of God to us. He was God coming to us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The scripture says in John chapter 6 verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. Stop chasing after manna. The Messiah has come for you. Stop living the rest of your life for earth-born bread that satisfies for a minute. For passions of the flesh, for accolades or status or success or anything that could scratch that itch for a minute. And instead, reach out and take hold of the bread of heaven. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And as we take communion and eat the bread that reminds us of the flesh of Christ broken for us, we internalize his covenant. We remember the Passover meal where a sacrificial lamb died in the place of the sinner in that house. Truly, God will show mercy on whom he will show mercy, even if he has to move heaven and earth to do so. Even if he has to die in our place to justify our mercy. In verse 66... The scriptures say that many left him. And then he looks at Peter and the others. And in one of my favorite passages in the entire New Testament. After these bewildered crowds, understandably confused until the first time they took communion. After they walk away from Christ, scratching their head, disappointed, disheveled. Verse 67, Jesus looks at the disciples. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we go? Would we turn back to hoping for manna? For bread of this earth? So I'll ask you a couple of questions. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And his body was broken for you. That was his purpose. And in the life and the death of Jesus, listen to me, we have beheld the glory of God. We've seen the face of the Creator as the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
And I want to ask us, church, are you going to leave too? When following Jesus gets difficult, when perseverance is more than you can muster, when it's too hard or too sad or you're too alone, or when the world's temptations become too strong, are you going to leave too? (coughs) Will we look up a year from now and you're not here? Ninth graders, will we look up a year from now and, and, and you're not with us in 10th grade? Middle schoolers, will we celebrate baccalaureate a few years from now and you're not there with your church family finishing with Christ? Like, will our pews be empty from you in your 20s and 30s? Like, will we be missing you until you have your own kids and bring them to the nurse? Like, are you going to stay with Christ through the harder teachings or when the crowd around you or, or everybody in your college or your friend group or sometimes yourself looks up and says, that's too much, it's too hard, it's not worth it. Are you going to leave him too? Listen, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and you have beheld the glory of God. You saw that God died on the cross for our sins. Could there be a more loving God? He's given us everything. We beheld His glory, full of grace, full of truth. And I invite you as a church family, as we take communion this morning, as you wait and listen in the moments of silence, as you hold the bread, as you take the cup, would you let this be your response to a God who died for you, who saved you? Would you receive communion today, thankful for the Christ who offered it? I invite my brothers, the deacons who serve our church family, to gather with me around the communion table. It's our intention to serve you. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling.